Latter-day Contemplation is a podcast hosted by two Latter-day Saints who have found great value in experiencing God through walking a path of contemplation. The views expressed herein are our own. Hello and welcome to Latter-day Contemplation. We are your hosts, Christopher Hurtado and Riley Risto. Latter-day Contemplation started as an exploration of contemplative practices from many traditions to enhance our discipleship of Jesus Christ. We're by no means experts in the topics we discuss, but what we have is an openness to questions, a hunger to discover truth wherever we can find it, and a desire to share in the transformative life of inner peace. We love that you've joined us, and we hope that you find value in this community. Hello and welcome back to Latter-day Contemplation. I'm Riley Risto. And I'm Christopher Hurtado. Today we're going to be talking about resurrection, and I kind of see this as the culmination of several episodes that we've recorded in the past, all sort of leading us back into this subject. We've done episodes, for instance, on the Born Again experience back when Shiloh was co-hosting. We talked a lot about baptism at that time. We did an episode, I think it was number six, on the true self. We did an episode number 27 on contemplating death. And then as recently as 34, we did an episode on the vision, DNC 76, which incorpora- incorporated a lot of discussion about uh, death and resurrection by reference to a scripture that Joseph Smith was studying at the time. And so what, a lot of things have kind of led us into this contemplated discussion about resurrection. And in the past, I've I've read a couple books about the subject. In particular, I, I gained a lot of insight on the subject from Adam Miller's book, An Early Resurrection, Life in Christ Before You Die. And, of course, the Stoic practice of, of contemplating death, memento mori, and why that's an important practice, um, have all kind of led us into this, this discussion. Um, what are your initial thoughts, Christopher, on, on the topic of resurrection? The first thing that comes to my mind is to say that we don't have to wait to die physically to die to our false self and be born to our true self or to die to an old life and be born to a new life. And I think of the, the stage in the hero's journey as, as Joseph Campbell pointed out in all the in all the mythology in all the the world mythology that there's always this stage where the hero dies to his old self and is resurrected to his new self and and that brings forth the boon that was the treasure that he sought and and he and, and you live a life now where you are kind of master of both the special world that you went to and the 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 normal world that you come back to as a hero and so you're sort of a master of both worlds so you've 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 tasted that death and you've tasted the new life and you sort of straddle both worlds. And I like that breakdown because it it really points to a repetitive cycle that all of us should be going through throughout our lives, which is to go through these, you know, repeated hero's journey type experiments where we where we cross a threshold of a new uh, uh, adventure and hopefully come away with it with an increase in in knowledge or spirit or or what have you. And really that's the principle behind the idea of of repentance and baptism, that that newness of life that comes from that repetitive cycle of of dying and being reborn. And so it's already kind of 
incorporated into the, the theology that we believe. And it, it shouldn't be a foreign practice to us at all to have this kind of present perspective of death and resurrection, do you think? Yeah, you know, it reminds me too of a conversation I was having with my daughters earlier. We've been reading and studying and discussing the life of St. Teresa of Avila by herself. And there's this question that, that I asked them in the discussion of the book, which is because there, there's this idea that you can grow without pain. And we all know that there are growing pains. That, that's, that's the reality of growing. And so the question is, what, what experience, I asked them what experience they've had where they have, where they've had pain, but where they've had growth come out of that pain. And it really brought up, brought up the idea that they're pretty much, just like Joseph Campbell has this, this idea of the hero's journey that we can see in our own lives, we can see the, the arc of our entire life as a hero's journey. And as you've pointed out, it's actually full of hero's journeys. So even though there's one arc that's overarching, uh, there's also this, there's, the, the cycle repeats itself. And so what came out in our discussion is that some of these, these repetitions, some of these cycles, let's say, are, they're part of growing up, right? So there's, you just move from one phase of life to another. And so we can see life in that way. And if we think about life in an eternal perspective, we can still fit that same perspective that I'm mentioning here from my discussion with my daughters into an eternal perspective, right? Where, where death, the physical death, that precedes the physical resurrection, say, is just one more, you know, one more passage from one phase to another, where you die to your old self and you're reborn to a new self. And so we do that throughout life. We don't have to wait until the end of our physical lives to do that. And the end of our physical life does not mark the end of the the doing of it, right? The, the con- there's a continuation of those cycles and of that cycle. Yeah, and I, I think there's a sense in which we can try to separate the traditional understanding of what resurrection means from this new understanding, not because they need to be separated, but because so many that grow up in a, a singular faith tradition have a very singular understanding about what resurrection is. And seeing it instead as a series of cycles that are enacted in the present moment and then within the context of one larger overarching cycle, I think is a really good way to to understand that. So I appreciate you bringing that up. So to kind of introduce this new way of, of looking at or thinking about resurrection, I think a key thought and why I brought up earlier our, our uh, episode on contemplating death, a key thought here is to think of yourself as dead, consider yourself as dead. And that that's kind of a strange thought to have for those who aren't used to that practice because we we tend to have a very terminal idea about what death is, right? That uh, it's just, boom, it's the end, and then you just wait for the global resurrection of, of the, that the Savior will bring, right? But what if we were to think of ourselves as dead today? What impact would that have on how we view resurrection? Yeah, that's a really different question from the one I, I first thought you were asking. So it's not think ahead to your death that you're saying. You're saying, right. think of yourself as now dead. Right. And so if I think of myself as dead now, well, then I'm looking for a resurrection <laughs> right away. I want that now, too. Right. 
And so then it puts you on the path immediately, right? So just that one thought by itself spurs the the intention behind contemplating what resurrection can mean beyond that singular event when you physically die. So Riley, in what way, what would put me, what would make it real or believable for me? How would I really see myself as dead and feel like it's true? I really am. Well, again, we have to change our mindset about what death is. Right. And Paul spoke about this all the time in in his um in his writings in the New Testament where he would say he was dead as to something, right? Dead as to myself or dead as to the body or dead as to the world. And so he was expressing a way of thinking about death that was different um than that, you know, necessary physical death that all people will experience somewhere down the road. He's really talking about a present moment kind of death. So we can really begin to see ourselves as in some way dead. Yeah. So, I mean, here's one that we can start with. We all know that the natural man is an enemy to God, right? That's, that's a well-known scripture from the Book of Mormon, right? The natural man is an enemy to God. So what if we were dead to the natural man? What would that look like? And how would we resurrect from that state of death? Well, you know, the natural man occurs to me as a Latter-day Saint way of talking about the false self, right? So the, the true self would be born out of that death. A life in Christ. And Christos, you know, in Christ is, is something that John says a lot, right? He talks about life in Christ a lot. Yeah, and that's a key understanding to, to really figure out this metaphorical way of framing death. Uh, and, and maybe I shouldn't say metaphorical because it's just as real as the, the physical uh, death and resurrection, this spiritual death and resurrection. You mentioned John, and a, a few episodes ago we talked about DNC 76 and, the, and the, the reference scripture that Joseph Smith was studying at the time was from John chapter 5, um, verses 24 through 29, I believe. I think it was just 29, but I went back and studied a little bit more. This is, this is a great read, and maybe I won't read the whole thing, but I'm going to read a couple of verses here just to give people a feel for a new way of looking at uh, life and death and resurrection. So verse 24, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me, this is Christ speaking, hath everlasting life, and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Verily, 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 I say unto you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they, shall, they that hear shall live. For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself. So the way he's explaining this here seems to be a, a very present moment explanation. When he's saying that the Son and the Father both have life in themselves, they're exercising that that life within themselves as, as a resurrection. And when Christ in the intercessory prayer, in, again in John chapter 17, says that he wants for these people what he has with God and that he has kind of life within himself and unity with God, and he wants that same unity to be the case for his disciples, those that he says God had given him, that speaks to me to be 
very similar to this idea of um, a resurrection in, in Christ, a resurrection in a newness of life and a new unity with the true self or the God within. Yeah, and it's really clear that he's talking about something that's happening in the present while you're physically alive. And one of the clues that we pointed out last time about this is that if you're a corpse, you don't hear anything. And so we're looking at what we call walking dead, not to invoke images of zombies. Maybe I shouldn't have said that. But the idea is that in some sense, that we're walking around dead to a life in Christ that's possible, but that we're not actually living. We're not awake to the reality of the presence of that possibility in our lives. Right. At, to some degree, at least. Yeah, and maybe a, you know, a soft way to say that is they're somewhat spiritually dead. You know, they're dead to that spirit that, it, that enlivens them from within. And so a lot of us go through our life you know, in this kind of walking dead or spiritually dead mode where we're just, you know, we've got our routine and we're just doing things because we feel like we have to do them. And, um, and a lot of that is a pursuit of a life that we think belongs to us. So, you know, we're pursuing uh, money or prestige or um, victory or achievement or whatever. And those pursuits are sort of the things of the world. And if we're going to be dead to the natural man and the things of this world, they have to matter less for us than this life of the spirit that we want to be reborn into. Yeah, I noticed something there in what you said, Riley, that I want to, you know, highlight, and that is that when the spiritual death that you talk of, it's not, it's not that you're wicked or in sin. It's not something like that. It's just that you are not really fully present to and aware of and in an active pursuit of an experience of Christ in your life, right? Yeah. And yeah. and it's and, and and in fact you may not be really now that I say that, you may not be really intentional in any way, right? The point is even though you you mention these goals that we may have that are not the goal of returning to the Father and becoming one with him as as Christ did, even though that may be our goal, we still are going through life. Well, even though we, I should say, even though we say that's our goal, we're still going through life pursuing these other goals. And even in pursuing those other goals, what I see is that oftentimes we're not even really being intentional in doing those things. We're just doing what we did yesterday and the day before. And so that is kind of a walking dead life to live, isn't it? Yeah, I think what you highlight is important because a lot of the things that we do, they're not they're not like evil in and of themselves, right? I mean, we're doing things that preserve our existence and, you know, put food on the table and all that kind of stuff, feed our families and roof over our head. Those, those things aren't inherently evil in any way, but it's the intention that's connected to them that's missing. And, and so we just go through life kind of just droning along, doing these things without having that connection to the Spirit and the intention that goes along with that. And towards the end of this episode, I've got a plan for sort of outlining what a a practice of incorporating resurrection might look like. And I, this that's a big part of it, is including kind of an intentional, um, thankful life of gratitude, you know, around this topic of resurrection. But before we get there, I, um, I want to highlight this, this uh, scripture from, from Romans. 
because again, this is another great explanation of what is already in our theology, particularly in the baptism and sacrament service. So within within our theology, we, we recognize that baptism represents the the burial and then the resurrection, just as just as Christ died and was resurrected, we kind of mimic that, right? So we are ritually dying when we ba- when we're going through our baptism, and in in particular the sacrament. Weekly. Yes, yes. So it's not so much that we're, uh, you know, being cleansed. It's more that we're just starting over. Um, cleansing is is great, you know that that ritual washing is fine, but this is a full burial. You know, for a washing, all you need is a sponge. You can wash off your arms and legs and back and whatever. But for death, you're buried. You go under the water completely, and then you come completely out of the water. And there's a reason why we have that full immersion. It's a, it's a burial and death. So that ritual death that's repeated weekly in a cycle is to constantly remind us of what our priorities can be. Which is to be reborn in Christ. Yes. Or at least just to keep us mindful of, uh, of Christ, if nothing else, you know, to always remember him. That's right there in the sacrament prayer. And how we do that is, is through that ritual, that ordinance that, uh, that has been given to us by God to constantly remind us of Christ. There's, there's something else, though, that, that shows up here. And this is something we've gone into before, but I think it's worth repeating. The remembering of Christ isn't necessarily, or at least isn't necessarily only a mental operation, right? Because you're talking about the breaking of the bread is a, in some sense a dismemberment. And remembering means to bring the members back together again, right? So that's remembering. And that's done in the body of Christ. And the, and the body of Christ is us, right? We're the, the saints, the ecclesia, the gathering of the saints is the body of Christ. And back to the Bible again, where we read that your body is a temple. As I've mentioned before, that's that you is plural. So your body doesn't mean Riley's, you know, just yours, Riley. It means you, the community of Christ, the ecclesia, the gathering, are the body. And the body of Christ is, is remembered in the sacrament, in that body, in the church. So I want to read this scripture from Romans chapter 8 that I think directly relates to this idea of of death and rebirth. It says, For to be carnally minded is death. So to right from the get-go, it, it defines death as being carnally minded. And I think that relates, again, Christopher, to something we talked about a little earlier about how just going through life, um, concerned with the matters of just staying alive really nothing else okay it's just you know subsistence and taking care of what needs to be taken care of and these aren't spiritual matters although they can be it's really just about where our minds at so then the next part follows but to be spiritually minded is life and peace so really anything can be spiritual if we have that intention of making it such and that's a big part of our contemplative practice, as we've discussed in the past, is seeing in the very simple everyday things the the finger of God, you know, that he's touching us in, in many ways, whether it's through nature, 
you've talked about in doing the dishes as a meditative practice. Like all of these things with intention can can lead us back into that spiritual mindset. So again, for to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. What do you think about that? I love that. The the image of of peace especially speaks to me. You know, I, I love how you pointed out that when we to be carnally minded, it doesn't have to be about um sexual appetites, for example. Um it 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 has, you know, it sounds like it might be something like that. But to the appetites of the flesh do include uh those sexual appetites. But there are others too, and all of them have their place, including sexual appetites. But when we when those things become all consuming, this is spiritual death, right? And so to be focused spiritually is to be able to not to give up our pursuits for those things in their proper place, right? Obviously, we have to eat. Uh, that doesn't mean that doesn't require gluttony, right? Obviously, we procreate. That does not require a compulsive sexual behavior, right? But to put these things in their proper place has everything to do with being spiritually minded and finding peace in our lives. It reminds me of Al-Ghazali in The Alchemy of Happiness because he does use the image of the, the forge as, as abstinence, abstinence, or by which he means not a monkish life because that wouldn't fit an Islamic context, but a life in which the appetites are kept within their proper bounds. And that purifies the soul. He calls it the forge of abstinence. And the point of a forge in an alchemical context is to purify. So I'm going to continue on where it starts to talk a little bit about this, this uh, maybe the sacramental resemblance here. But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken or resurrect your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. So the quickening, uh, let's see, the, the quickening device is the spirit that dwells in you. That's the thing that quickens you, that resurrects you, that brings you back to the spiritual life and the spiritually minded life of peace. It's that spirit. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live after the flesh. For if ye live after the flesh, or again, to be carnally minded, ye shall die. But if ye, through the Spirit, do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God, glorified and resurrected into his family. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage, or death, again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with him, again back to the baptismal covenant of mourning with those who mourn, that we may be also glorified or resurrected together. So there's obviously a way to read this in a very literal sort of singular global sense of a resurrection, but there's right from the get-go when it tells us to be carnally minded is death and spiritually, spiritually minded is life and peace. I think that sets the tone for us to read this in, an, in a new way. 
So when it says something like mortify the deeds of the body and live, I think what it's talking about there is find the spiritual element in all the things that you do. Be spiritually minded in your intention. And it's in that that you find life and peace. So that there's your resurrection. You know, that reminds me of another episode we recorded, which is on the esoteric and the exoteric, the inner and the outer experience of religion. I think the two ways that you read this, one looks esoteric and the other looks exoteric. There's this, there's an, an actual physical death and resurrection, and we could think of that as the exoteric. And then there's the inner experience, an, an esoteric experience. And I think this is, both readings are valid. And I, I know you have some quotes you want to share from the, the Gnostic Gospels that get us into that more esoteric view. And so I'm looking forward to those. But was there something else you wanted to Yeah, so before I first? move on from that, I want to read this last one from Romans uh, 6. And I won't read all 11 verses, but I want to take this little excerpt from there because, again, relates back to baptism. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into his death. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in the newness of life. I love that phrase. For if we have been planted together, okay, buried in the soil, in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection, which is that rebirth or sprouting forth of the new seed, the new plant from the seed. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin, for he that is dead is freed from sin. That's an because interesting to be phrase. carnally minded is death. Right. So that connects us directly to this Gnostic gospel quote from the Gospel of Philip. And I love this because it very explicitly says that we are directed to resurrect while we're alive. It says, You must awaken while in this body, for everything exists in it. Resurrect in this life. Those who say that the Lord first died and then was resurrected are wrong, for he was first resurrected and then died. If someone has not first been resurrected, they can only die. If they have already been resurrected, they are alive as God is alive. Wow. Wow, Riley, that's that's a different image, isn't it? I love that. Yeah, me too. That's really cool. One of the things about the Gnostic Gospels that I appreciate is they kind of flip everything on their head and give you a different way of looking at things. And as someone who you know teaches gospel doctrine, I, that's, that's how I operate. I mean, I, I like to create an environment where people not necessarily question core beliefs, but they want to see things in new perspectives. And I try to ask questions or offer them an opening into those new perspectives. And that's what the Gnostic Gospels many times do for me. They point out the, the inherent contradictions that aren't necessarily contradictory and bring, bring them into one kind of syncretic, unified whole uh, of understanding. Riley, what you just said brings to mind, it evokes an image of the typical gospel doctrine class. I, I think it's typical. That doesn't look like that. And, and it looks like death. <laughs> you know what I mean? It looks like 
you're just li- in living this uh, this gospel doctrine class that looks just like the last one, and there's no new thinking, right? There's no new perspective, and so you're you're mentioning here, in the spirit of this whole discussion, your way of approaching things shows another possibility, right? A possibility of a resurrection into a new way of thinking. Well, not everyone I appreciates it, though. I mean, like you know, there's there's certainly a time and a place for that kind of. I don't want to call it necessarily a deconstruction, but definitely new perspective. And then, but there's some people who are just very comfortable and they, they want the easy answers and that's okay. But that's not what I offer in my classes. I, um, and you know, again, it's not appreciated by everyone, but that's how I do it. And hopefully people walk out of there at least having thought, like exercised their brain. You know, that reminds me of the approach I took as a philosophy professor, you know, teaching in Utah Valley, a lot of my students were Latter-day Saints, and I pointed out to them at the beginning of, of the semester together that I'm really, I'm not trying to change their minds about anything. What I want them to do, if they want to keep their same beliefs at the end of the class, I'm okay with that, but I want them to think in the interim between now and the end of the class, I want them to maybe have a better reason to think the way they think or to believe what they believe. Does that make sense? That's that's absolutely how I feel, and like when when someone offers a, you know, a comment or they they take the lesson in a certain direction, I really try hard to, um, to give that validity, you know, and to to really validate those ideas. And just because I don't necessarily share them doesn't matter. I, I just want people to think and express uh, how how these lessons are affecting them and their understanding, so that everyone can be edified together. And I love so that. not much is off the table in, in my Sunday school class. Yeah, at the same time, I also pointed out that if they found that they had a reason to believe otherwise, to, to, to have a new belief or to think in a new way, that they should do that. And so that's possible too. It is possible that we are thinking of things in the wrong way. And so we can become ingrained in our way of thinking such that we believe we're in a rut. And, and this is what I meant by comparing it to this spiritual death. And we can't progress, right? If we, have, if we have the wrong idea about something that counts in terms of the reality of how God's plan unfolds, then it can stop us from making progress in that, in that route. You know, of course, we have the covenant path that's going to keep us pointed in the right direction. But at the same time, there may be something that's not really fully open to us because of a wrong understanding of something. Does that make sense? Well, yeah, it does. But I don't even necessarily think it needs to be a wrong understanding. It could just be a just a single understanding when there may be multiple called for. Yes. Uh, you know, because so, so often, I mean, I think this is the case in our church, especially since we do have a very kind of hierarchical top-down structure where the inspiration and revelation for the whole church comes through the top of the church and then filters down through the body of the church. Because of that, the the revelations or the answers that we get necessarily are to the questions asked by the leadership of the church. And so we sort of adopt those things, not that they're wrong or anything, but we sort of adopt those and then we don't go any further because we just say, okay, well, that's the answer to that question. So for instance, you know, on the the degrees of glory, okay? We have this in, in section, you know, 80, 84, for instance, and 88 outlined for us the 
the afterlife. This is what it looks like, because Joseph Smith said this is what it looks like. And so now every generation has taught that there's telestial, terrestrial, celestial, and there's outer darkness, and this is how it looks. And it's this very clean model. And because we've been handed that, we, we just don't look any further. We don't investigate deeper. We don't pray necessarily about the afterlife and, and what it might hold for us. And I don't think there has we, to be more, right? There has to be more. But then this, yeah, it, then this diorama or this, uh, what do you call those floating things above a baby's? Anyway, anyway, it's just a very simplistic model, but there's got to be more. Yeah, you make a good point, Riley. I stand corrected. It, it doesn't have to be a wrong understanding. It can just be incomplete, right? The point is that there may be more, and if we're not asking, if we're not seeking, that we may not uncover the more, and that that can stifle us in our spiritual growth. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, when we come to this idea of resurrection, I think it's easy for us with that understanding just to open up our, our mind and say that there's, there could be more. So we do have a very, I think, clear understanding of what the global resurrection is supposed to look like. That's outlined in scriptures, and prophets have said quite a bit about that. And, you know, by the priesthood, the men of the church will go and pull their wives and children out of the grave and, you know, all that stuff. Um, to me, that's so external. It's so far out there and removed from my present situation that it just doesn't have much relevance for me in my life. And so I'm much more concerned about this new way of understanding resurrection where it's a present reality and practice. I'm with you there. You know, interestingly, I'm not aware of some of the details. I've never heard some of the details you mentioned. And I'm not so sure that I would, not that I doubt your source for those doctrines, but I'm not so sure I would take them at face value anyway. Again, there's probably a deeper meaning. Uh, there's probably a symbol here at play that points to something else. But in the end, as you've said, well, that's about the end. And what about now? And so let's talk about how we live a life resurrected in Christ before we die. So again, I think that early first step is, is just to acknowledge or to recognize that I'm dead. Or to at least consider it. Consider, consider the possibility that you're dead. That I'm dead. Or allow for that to happen. Maybe it's an allowance. Yeah, let yourself be dead. Yeah. Yeah. And so first of all, we have to think about, okay, well, dead to what? And as we've discussed earlier, well, it could be it could be dead to my carnal desires. It could be it could be dead to this rat race I'm stuck in. And so contemplating that would be an individual pursuit and something to consider for each person that wants to enter into this process. Riley, you can really see how you could actually, you could be in the rat race, stuck in it, and not actually be dead to it. And just the practice of considering the possibility of being dead to the rat race could actually, it could actually cause that death to happen and the subsequent rebirth that is a that is to a better life and and it may have even more creative power than that honestly it could actually make the rat race not a rat race because that's exciting the intentionality of it right could change it for you completely so that no longer Absolutely. am i pursuing this for the purpose of some selfish worldly pursuit or because my life just belongs to me and i'm going to get the most that i can get all of a sudden maybe that pursuit is for some higher purpose. 
Yeah, by the very fact of engaging in this contemplative exercise, you're no longer dead. You, in a sense, are resurrected just because you engaged in this exercise, right? Well, and earlier it, it said in that uh, Roman scripture that it's the Spirit of God within us that, it, that um, quickens us. And so what we're doing now is we're making ourselves a partner with God through His Spirit in living our lives. And so no in longer... creating our own lives, exactly. right? Exactly. It's creation. That's right. We're co-creators with God in our own lives. I love that. So what, what would a practice of resurrection look like? A daily well, let's see, practice. First I, have to, first I have to climb out of the grave, right? Just kidding. <laughs> no, but uh, there's a metaphorical grave, right? So you, sure. you have to recognize first that, as you said earlier, we're, we're co-creators. Now we have a spiritual partner. So realizing that there is a sense in which you climb out of the grave then, all kidding aside, in which you realize that you're no longer walking alone. You never were. I'm reminded of the poem about the footprints in the sand. It's becoming aware that your partner, that you're, that you have a partner in God in, in co-creating your life. Right. So we've written down some ideas here of ways to incorporate this idea and practice of resurrection into your, into your daily walk. Helping others to discover or realize this newness of life through your love and kindness. I love that because you're, we're talking about how to be, how to live a resurrected life, how to be resurrected. And you mentioned this idea of helping others to realize or discover that they are. And that's going to help us to, uh, you see what I mean? How does that work? So it's going to help us to discover for ourselves that we're resurrected if we help others to discover that they are too. It makes sense. It's somewhat paradoxical, but it really does make sense because as we help others to become aware, we ourselves become aware. It's like bearing testimony. When we bear testimony, our testimony grows. When we, when we write our thoughts in our journal, we become more aware of our thoughts. My thought with incorporating other people into this equation is very similar to sort of what I do with my kids. I love to coach. I coach various sports. And when you see someone grasp on to a technique that you've been trying to teach them or a tactic you've been trying to teach them and they incorporate that and they're happy about it because it made them a better player, it makes me happy. And likewise with testimony, when you bear your testimony and you can see the spark in someone and it, it lights something up in them and they adopt that, that idea, there's a, there's a feeling of kinship between those people now that they have that same realization. You know, that it shows you that there's a flip side to this too, right? That, that makes me think of the next item on the list. I think that there's a reason why it shows up next on the list, and that's to mourn with those who mourn, right? So there may be those who are not, who in some sense are stuck in the rat race or in their, their, what do we call it, in this spiritually dead life in some sense, right? And so the first step is to actually be where you are. And this is step one of contemplation is being aware of where you are. And so for those who are, are there, wherever they are, we have to mourn with them. 
we've been there. If we're if we're living a resurrected life in any sense, and I, I always think in terms of degrees, rather. I don't think that there are those who are living resurrect, resurrected lives and those who aren't. I think we're all living at various degrees of deadness and aliveness and maybe even varying day by day in that. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so we have to be willing to mourn with those who mourn and to lift up those who need to be lifted up to be able to, as in Plato's cave, to go, once we've gone out of the cave and once we have this new life, to be willing to go back into the cave and to help those who are still in the cave to to reach this new life themselves, to come out of the cave and into the light themselves. Well, and if we take Christ as the model for resurrection, about how you go through this process of death and resurrection, then one of the things that he did is that he he mourned with all those who mourned. He was trying to pull them out of their spiritually dead or uh, carnally minded state into this new this new life. And so, by relating to Christ in that way, becoming you know a substitute or a uh, a proxy for Christ, then we're, that's part of a practice of resurrection. Maybe not even for us as much as for someone else. So the next one on the list here is noticing the signs and beauty of birth, rebirth all around you in nature. Something we talk a lot about in prior episodes of of Latter-day Contemplation is this idea of awareness and how contemplation is really just noticing. And by seeing what's around you in nature, you cannot help but recognize the constant death and rebirth that's always taking place. Yeah, you know, I'm reminded of one particular symbol of the resurrection, which is the lily. And lilies actually include a lot of different plants and flowers. I think they include onions. But I'm thinking of that trumpet-like white lily that we associate with Easter, right? That's a symbol of resurrection. It's interesting to note that it is white. That's one thing, right? Uh, there's there's power. There are a lot of different aspects to this to this symbol. There's There's a lot of power in the symbology. It is shaped like a trumpet. We think of the the resurrection as you know the trumpet being blown and and people coming out of their graves. And this is a flower that it dies and it comes back every year, not every year, multiple times per year. It dies and it's born again. And so it really is a symbol of the resurrection in so many ways. So considering the lilies might might have some yes. value. <laughs> I love that. What a great connection, Riley. Consider the lilies. Yes. Brilliant. Something else we can do is to help alleviate death and suffering and bring souls back into the land of the living. How do we do that, Riley? Well, have you ever encountered someone who you look in their face and it's just blank? Yeah. They're, they're almost dead. They have nothing left in them. There's there's no motivating spirit to them whatsoever. Um, certainly no intention of getting out of their circumstances. And, and maybe not, you know, necessarily as a result of their own actions. I mean, things can stack up on a person quickly and the less resources we have to draw upon when that starts happening, the harder it is to climb out of that pit. And it can be easy to just feel completely discouraged. Like there's just no oh, yeah. hope. And so you look into the face of some of these these people and you see commercials and whatnot of 
you know, suffering people in other countries. And it, there's just that that kind of characteristic blank stare that's, that just says, I have no hope. Right. And doing a small part to try to alleviate some of the suffering and give someone even just a glimmer of hope. You've seen, again, some of the commercials, for instance, where someone in, uh, you know, builds a well in, in rural Africa or something. And the kids go from, you know, that blank stare to these joyful, playful smiles. And, you know, they're pumping their water and they're having water fights. And, it, you know, it just that that small amount that was given to alleviate suffering or even just provide a basic necessity, you can see the hope that it injected into that situation immediately. Yeah, I know what you mean. There are people who are, who are despondent, discouraged, maybe even despised, and, and maybe that's the cause. There are so many different possible causes. But when, we, when we're willing not just to mourn with them, but to actually give them a hand, you know, and to actually lift them up, then both we and they become alive in Christ in that act. Yeah, the spirit just seems to be back. You know, you can you can sense a spirit back in their life again where there was nothing there before. So um, the next one on the list is to kind of pray with intentionality for the health, well-being, and quality of life of others. And that's that's participating, again, in that creative act. If you believe that prayers have any power, you're participating in that creative act of, of resurrection for someone uh, through through that act of prayer. It's kind of like an intercessory see, prayer. Yeah, I can see including our enemies in these prayers too, you know, so that we can become more alive in Christ because certainly to to have an, a mindset that includes the possibility of enemies when Christ taught us to love our enemies, the point of which is to realize that we have no enemies, is going to keep us from living a life fully resurrected in Christ, right? So praying for our enemies can be something that pulls us out of that, that spiritual death into a life in Christ. Forgiving someone who has wronged you, how does that relate to resurrection? You know, to me, it relates directly to, to what I just said about enemies, right? There's, some sen- there's enmity there. There's some sense in which I hold that person at bay, in which I otherize, in which I hold a grudge or see myself, in, again, in some kind of enmity with another person as somehow separate when we're both children of God, when we're both um, equally human. And not having a, a clear picture of who and what our brothers and sisters are is going to keep us, again, spiritually dead. So we have to be able to forgive. We have to be able to love to be alive in Christ. Well, I, I kind of see a, a reciprocal benefit in this one where our progress is really stopped and we become damned if, if we don't forgive, both, both us and the person who has wronged us. Because they're not allowed to move on from the feeling, perhaps, of guilt for having wronged us. And we're not progressing because we're not exercising this mercy or forgiveness, uh, this this Christ-like attribute. And so it makes me think, for instance, of a certain place in the temple where it says, if any unkind feelings exist, 
you're invited to, to withdraw. And so it's, it's really guarding the sacredness of that experience from the unkind feelings between two people that might exist within that circle. And, and so by forgiving, you're, you're both able to move on and then progress and, and grow without that, you know, hanging over your head. So another thing we can do is to be truly enthusiastic about life itself. The, uh, whether it be life as it is, such that we accept it, or the possibility of a resurrected life, or the resurrected life that we are living to the extent that we are living it, to recognize that. Again, this is contemplation, to notice it, and to appreciate the good, and to be enthusiastic about it, and actively participating in activities that affirm that life, that, that the positive in the life that we are living, or the life that we, that we want to be living, is going to give us a fuller experience of a reality of that life. And the next one really feeds off of that, because those who don't participate in those life-affirming activities, as you spelled out, they, they go through life without a lot of purpose, and they're in that kind of walking dead or spiritually dead mode where they're, they're pretty much selfish and carnally minded. They're focused on themselves. By teaching others about what life in Christ means, we give them the opportunity to be enlivened by the gospel of service, of love, of charity. And so that's another way we can we can help people and ourselves participate in the resurrection. It occurs to me, too, that if we want to be alive in Christ, it really does take what we've said, we have to die to our false self, right? To our true self, which is in made in the image of God, is different from that natural man or that ego self that is an enemy to God. And we have to be willing to die to the ego self, which means despite the fact that we have all these these carnal necessities, right? The, the, the things that keep us alive and, and that, that we have to do, we have to be willing to die to those desires that are extraneous to that which is that are supererogatory to those that are necessary and we have to be willing to kill our ego in some sense to be alive in christ to be willing to turn our will over to his and to be able to to be willing to to give up the pursuit of our own desires our own natural desires in favor of a pursuit of a life in christ Well, and how that ego self manifests itself in the world is through our connection to money, status, conquest, power, dominion, where if we can set aside or, as we said earlier, die to those things as motives, as motivations, and turn our attention to love, kindness, meekness, gentleness, patience, some of those gifts of the Spirit that are mentioned in Galatians, then it's less about our actions and what the practical result is. You might make money, for instance. You might have status. You might have more uh, reputation pursuing this with positive or negative intentions, either way. But if you do it with the right intentions and die to the motivation of the, the carnal, then even these 
somewhat worldly tools like money, for instance, can be used for positive, for positive things. Absolutely. You remind me of uh, Arjuna from the Bhagavad Gita again when, uh, well, and it's Krishna's teaching to Arjuna that, I'm, that I have in mind. When Krishna, who is an incarnation of Vishnu, you can think of this as as God incarnate, equivalent to Jesus Christ, and but in a Hindu context, right? When the teaching of Krishna to Arjuna is that he should do what he does out of a sense of duty, you know, and what he's supposed to do as it's his duty to fight because he's a warrior, and he shrinks from this duty, and and Krishna tells him, you have to do what you do because it's your duty to do it and leave the results to me it really isn't up to you whether those you fight against will live or die they're already dead that's in my hands not yours and you just have to fight and you have to fight you have to do your duty without any desire for victory and without any fear of death neither desire for victory nor fear of death simply out of duty to do what is yours to do what is your dharma there's a lesson in that for all of us yeah, I mean, again, we do have to do our duty in this world. There are things that we have to do, and you can't get around it if you want to be able to, you know, survive physically, let alone spiritually. And, and yet we can do them without any desire for something more than fulfilling our duty, right? Which is to to feed our families, to and even others, because if we if we're doing our duty again without any thought of what will come of it not the we're not focused on the fruit we're focused on doing our duty and the fruit is abundant then let it be abundant and let us share for that is also our duty right yeah it's some of that non-attachment that you get in in other traditions as well well turning Absolutely. uh the turning the subject to uh some of the literal resurrection of the body characteristics you know i thought this one was a unique thought, participating with God in the literal resurrection of your body by caring for it, exercise, eating healthy, getting plenty of sleep, and incorporating some of those health-affirming practices like contemplation. Um, have you ever thought of participating with God in the literal resurrection of your body? No, because I think the, the reason that this kind of idea isn't open to us is because we're thinking this is something that happens after we die. And this we're talking about this inevitable physical death that all living beings face at some point. And so at that point, it takes something, I want to say supernatural, right? Something that it's that power of the resurrection that we speak of, that because Christ was resurrected and he can do it and we can't, and now we can because we can do it through him. And so this way of looking at things where we, where we first are resurrected and then die does open up the possibility for this kind of co-creation of a resurrection with God. So let me use a metaphor to kind of uh, explain to the audience what I was getting at in participating with God in the literal, res literal resurrection of your body. You know, we always think of resurrection as something that happens to us. Again, like you said, we're, we're broken down and we need the power of some external force to to kind of bring us back to life, right? But would you rather bring to life a car that went through a demolition derby and died or, you know, bring back a vintage, perfect condition, you know, 57 Chevy that maybe had a, uh, 
an engine sees up, right? I mean, I, th- I think that by by doing the best that we can, knowing that entropy is a real thing, you know, everyone decays, everyone dies, but in a literal sense, we can do the best with what we've been given, keep our body strong and fit for as long as possible, and try to stay healthy for as as long as as long as we can hold off nature, right? Yeah, that's something that that people might not think about considering that we have the idea, you know, it's in our theology that when we are resurrected physically, that we'll have perfect bodies regardless of what body we had before. But if you're thinking in terms of living a resurrected life now, then that health and vitality make all the difference in the in the quality of that resurrected life and even the possibility of it. Absolutely. So it's a it's a point well taken. You know, there's something else here that this is something I was hinting at that my daughters are struggling with. At least I had it in mind. I don't remember whether I mentioned it, but you know, they we've been living in California for a couple of years. We moved here from Utah. They have we had the pandemic too for the last couple of years coincidentally, meaning these two things coincided. And so they've really struggled with not being in Utah anymore and being here. And so one of the things we can do, and this is what I was counseling them, is to be open to changes and to realize that, again, that through whatever pain they're experiencing, that they can actually progress. And they can they can be, if they're willing to, because it's it's a barrier to resurrection to not be willing to die to whatever was before, right? So yes. if we're not open to change, then we can't actually come into a resurrected life. We can't come into a new life unless we're willing to let the old life go. And we have to trust God and know that that this resurrected life, which I think if we talk about it this way, and maybe I, I should mention this to them, then it becomes more of an exciting possibility. Who wouldn't want to be resurrected, right? I mean, especially if you're if you're in this living dead space where it's not that the pain is real, right? As as Buddhism teaches us, pain is inevitable, but suffering is optional. So if you're in a place of suffering because of attachment, letting go of an old life can mean a new life, a resurrected life in which that pain, not that, it, not that you wouldn't necessarily have pain, but in, in which suffering isn't a part of that pain. The suffering goes with letting go, right? I love the uh, the anecdote or the the advice that my stake president shared with us when we set apart my son this last uh, well yesterday as a as a missionary a full time missionary um, he's getting ready to go to Chile and he's doing home MTC so yesterday was his first uh, his first day as a missionary and so we went over to the stake president's office to set him apart and one of the things that we had our whole family there with us. And the stake president was talking to all my kids. And one of the the pieces of advice he offered was, you know, your your brother is going to change through this process. And let him change. That Those were his words. Let him change. Let that happen. Because if you ridicule, because the thing is, we know people a certain way, especially ones that we're very comfortable and familiar with. And when they change, a lot of times we ridicule them. Like we, we think, oh, they're, they're faking it or they're trying to be something they aren't. 
So there's they are there's exactly there's two sides really to are. that coin. We though. have to let them. Yeah, we have to let them. Not only do we have to be open to it ourselves, experiencing a person in a, in a new way or a new situation, but we also have to allow other people to change without ridicule. Yeah, it's interesting because God puts us in families, and all the communities we're a part of offer us opportunities. Not just our family; all the communities we're part of offer us the opportunity to learn about ourselves through whatever it is that we struggle with in relationship with other people. I've learned to think of whatever struggles I have in my marriage as I used to think this was the this was the old life that I died to and 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 then there's a new life that I'm resurrected to. I don't think anymore in terms of I'm struggling with my wife. I like to think of it in terms of I'm struggling with myself in relationship to my wife. And and that's a blessing. That, that's one of the blessings of marriage and, and of family. And yet at the same time, you know, so we need that. We need that familiarity. We need those relationships. But at the same time, it can make it hard, right? If, if those around us that are closest to us don't let us die and be resurrected, that can, that can hold us back a little bit. Yeah. So yeah, we have to, we have to work with each other in, on so many different levels as family and as, and all communities. And some Absolutely. of that might be communication, just letting, whether it's your your life partner, your wife, your your kids, your sibling, let them know. You know, my intention is to change. I I, I there's some things about myself I need to change, and I'm going to set out to do it. And I hope you'll you know offer me some some encouragement and grace as I go through this process. And you know, I, I maybe that's one way to approach it. That's beautiful, Riley. I love that. That's a really good tip. You know, this this takes us right into another point, if I can take the next one, you know, expressing gratitude for life however you're experiencing it. In going through this discussion of St. Teresa's, you know, the life of St. Teresa by herself with my kids, I wanted them to teach them what contemplative prayer actually is. And I pulled up a video on YouTube by Father Richard Rohr explaining what contemplative prayer is. And he gave a definition. This wasn't all he said, but he gave this very simple definition. He said, take a long, loving look at reality and let it be reality. And so that connects directly with what you said, right? It's just to take that long, loving look at reality and let it be reality. Hmm. Yeah, that's lovely. And that, that, that's a big thing for us in this, uh, this podcast is, is to be okay with the with the life you have, having a sense of contentment and uh, just contemplating the beauty in all of it. It's, it's there. Well, lastly, uh, I want to suggest participating in the creative process. This is something that, uh, Christopher, you, you mentioned earlier in the discussion was participating in the process of creation. So starting a family, planting a garden, raising animals, cooking meals, doing artwork, writing a song, poem, or memoir, forming or shaping something. By participating in the creative process, we are sort of acting as, as Christ would have us act. We are, we're participating in resurrection. We're bringing something to life where maybe there was only an animate object. Yeah, any, anything that's creative, right? And there it is, the, the word create, right? The creator is, is the one who who makes us, right? We're his handiwork. And anytime that we actually participate with him as co-creators in our own lives, 
we're living a resurrected life. It's a new life. It's a life of, it's a life like his life, right? I think there's a, a really important reason why when we go to the temple, the central drama of that experience is the creation. You know, like I mentioned earlier, my son, uh, he's a missionary now, and we, we just took him to the temple for the first time to get his endowment out. And he said his favorite part was was the video um, where it showed the, the creative process. He really related to that. He loved seeing the, the various pictures of the animals represented and the plants and how the worlds were organized. And that's... That's rebirth. That's that's resurrection. Taking something from a state of of deadness into a new a newness of life. Well, Christopher, this has been a great discussion. Is there anything else you want to add on the back end of this? I think we've covered uh, all the the bases. You know, the things that we wanted to cover, and we've got some some really good stuff to work with here in terms of living our own res- resurrected lives. Most of it just begins with a, a change of mindset and just being willing to incorporate this idea into perhaps our larger understanding of resurrection and, and make it something that will actually have a practical effect for us on a, on a daily basis. And we hope this enhances your, your approach to the gospel and enhances your discipleship. And uh, it's been our pleasure to, to present this for you today. For Latter-day Contemplation, I'm Riley Risto. And I'm Christopher Hurtado. Have a great week.